again third week in a row i think fourth week i don't even remember now they're all just blending into one another it's uh, the real john baker and you're listening to the greatest podcast ever assembled by one man in an office room in his house with very limited technology and a desire a desire to do the best he can the podcast is called too lazy to write and i thank you for listening uh, this week, uh, again, before I tell you who my guest is, I uh, I started out, it was a great Skype interview, and then the whole thing crapped out on me, so I went back to the app to complete the interview. Uh, but who's my guest this week, you might ask? He is uh, Barber Extraordinaire. Man goes by the name of Dustin Foley. He's got a shop in Falls Church, Virginia, uh, called the Neighborhood Barber Shop. And I've been going there for about two years. And by no means, uh, I don't want you to think this is an advertisement for Dustin's shop. He does not need my help. He has uh, enough clients probably to last him and his crew of uh, nine other barbers a lifetime. It is a really wonderful, unique place that I discovered uh, living here in Northern Virginia. Dustin is a great guy. Um, Not just uh, because he's my barber, (laughs) but... Because he really is a great guy. He's a community-oriented uh, uh, guy who he, he cares deeply about his craft. He cares deeply about others. Um, and he cares deeply, really, about the history of barbering, which you're going to find out a lot about. I found out some stuff, a lot of stuff that I didn't know. You're going to find out about chairs. You are going to find out the history behind the barber pole, which I thought I had a little idea about, oh, how wrong I was. You are going to find out a lot. And uh, we did the interview again from my uh, my palatial home right here in Northern Virginia. Not really. And the home, not uh, that I'm in Northern Virginia, it's not palatial. It's very nice. We like our house. Anyway, uh, I want you to give a listen to it. And then if you happen to be in the Northern Virginia area or you're driving through and you need a haircut, you're going to go to the Neighborhood Barbershop's website and uh, book an appointment. But we'll get to that later. So here it is, me and uh, my barber. Dustin Foley. Hope you enjoy. How are you, man? Oh, man. Incredible. How about you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm so glad you agreed to be part of this uh, experiment I'm doing here, my my podcast experiment. Of course. Yeah, man. This, I'm flattered you asked. Well, this is, um, this is kind of interesting because this is, I believe, our first conversation where I don't have to give you money in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or are you going to charge me for this? Yeah, where do I pay you? Yeah, well, there's <laughs> Skype setup where you can actually uh, um, pay money. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Oh, that's crazy. I have so much I want to ask you, but I didn't even write any I didn't write any questions down because I figure we've uh, we've known each other kind of as customer uh, barber for yeah. two, two years now, huh? Yeah, that sounds about right. But um, but I always get the feeling there's a lot more to you than just a barber. Huh? Definitely not. Way less. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> but okay. So this is something I've I've run into with people. 
people don't generally like to be introduced as by their, by their profession, right? Like, Hey, I wouldn't say like, Hey, this is Dustin, my barber. Would that bother you if, if people did that? No, not at all. No, I'm, I I love my profession. You know, it's not, I I used to work in law enforcement and you didn't want to lead off with that because then you're just answering a bunch of questions about, you know, some person's parking ticket they got five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is, this is something else. I mean, this is a big community and, and it's a time honored profession and I'm proud to be a part of it. So you just said, and I wanted to touch on that. And I always get this feeling from you that you, you've mentioned your law enforcement background. Do you want to talk about that? Like, yeah, it's pretty uneventful. Oh really? I just worked for, yeah, yeah. I worked for the sheriff's department back in California for about 10 years, did a bunch of different jobs for them. And, um, it was in a uh, civilian role, so I didn't have to put anybody in jail or anything. But it was, it was very, uh, um, very closely related to the deputy side of things. So um, I mostly did uh, traffic collision investigation, oh. and so, so basically, what I would do instead of uh, instead of sending a cop onto a crash call, they would send me. Saw a lot of weird stuff. <laughs> And then while you were doing that, were you, were you cutting hair on the side or like, how did the barbering career get come about? So, so they kind of run hand in hand because I had to get haircuts all the time for work back at the sheriff's department. So started going to barbershops, loved, loved, loved being there. Um, just met so many cool people and a bunch of my friends kind of grew up barbering and I realized that it was something I wanted to do. And I, I like what you said that you met a lot of cool people there because I find, and people might disagree, but I find the barbershop to be a very quintessential American thing. Now, I know there's barbershops all over the world, but there's mm-hmm. something uniquely American about a barbershop. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. It's the it's the poor man's uh, country club. Okay. <laughs> it always has been. You know, it's the place where we can go and escape from our bosses and escape from our lives for a little while and, and just go talk. Wait, can I swear? Yeah. Okay. We, we can go talk shit and, you know, just be ourselves for a little while. And there's it's, like a nice it's degree something of, unique. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's a degree of like partisanship. I mean, even though you might be on one side of politics and I might be on the other, there still seems to be like a, a common ground that can be discussed. Well, yeah. I mean, we're, especially around us, um, once you find a barbershop that you like, you, you stick with it. And so if you disagree with somebody, you're going to be a lot more civil there than somewhere else mm-hmm. because you don't want to blow it. You don't want to get thrown out of the place. You don't want to wear out your welcome. So even if you disagree with somebody, I mean, and I've seen it happen where people get at each other's throats and and, you know, luckily never in our shop, but I've, I've seen it happen and everybody seems to circle the wagons and calm the situation down. And, you know, I've, I've never seen a live fight over nothing, yeah. but I know it's, I know it's happened. <laughs> well, I could believe it. I mean, I know you've seen some political figures cross your street and you don't agree with them. Well, but... Right, right, right. Well, yeah. I mean, we see all kinds of knuckleheads and a lot of people that we don't even know who they are. And, I think that's that's something that, you know, something maybe to speak to as well. It's 
it's a great equalizer. Everybody needs a haircut, whether you're rich man, poor man, somewhere in between, you still need to go there and you still need to, you know, you're kind of your mercy of your barber, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure there's a lot of people that disagree with, you know, where I'm coming from politically, but you know, they don't have much of a choice because uh, I've got a, a knife to their neck. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, you have the razor to their throat, so that's uh, that's going to make you shut up and think, right? Right. <laughs> so, but, how, you know. How, sorry, go mm-hmm. ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, but, you know, of, of course I welcome all conversation. I, I'm, I'm the type of person, I just, I like to hear all angles. I like to challenge my own thoughts and and see where I stand. You know, if I don't, if I don't ever compare them against something, then I'm just living in my own little vacuum. It's true. And you have a a great community like you personally, and and I get it from the guys who work there. There's a great sense of community and and helping your neighbor. I want to talk a little bit about that. Where does, where does that come from for you? Well, you know, I'm Canadian. You're Canadian, right? Okay. Yes. And that, you think that's where your sense of helping others comes from? No, I mean, you could be born anywhere and and have values. I think it's I think it came from my parents. I mean, they're they're compassionate people and they care a lot for for other people and and raise me to to do the same, you know. Yeah. I I notice when people are suffering and I notice when people are uncomfortable and you know, it's difficult for me to turn a blind eye to it. So sometimes, you know, we'll end up getting involved in things that you know, are a little over our head because you know, we got to help. Just can't not. Well, so recently, I mean, the government shut down just now, but one of the things you did was you did the shutdown, what was it called? Get rid of it. We were calling it the shutdown cutdown. Um, right. Yeah, and it was just a an event where um, furloughed employees could come in and get their hair cut. We, we expected a lot, a lot of people, so we kind of narrowed it to just government employees. Right. Um, in retrospect, I think we should have, you know, just opened it up to anybody out of work because of the debacle. Well, I mean, it's entirely possible you'll be doing it again in three weeks. Right. Yeah. Hopefully not. Knock on wood. Yeah. And I'm going to do that. I just walk, walk by some wood. <laughs> um, uh, and so how many people did, did come out for that? More than you expected? Um, than you expected? Yeah, less than we expected. Um, and we were we were talking about why that probably is. I mean, it, it was a it was a healthy turnout. It was in the in the ballpark of twenty people. Okay. Um, and we talked to some other people that were also doing some some outreach and charity stuff yesterday. And you know, we we kind of speculated it's it's a bit because it was over. It wasn't a continuing thing anymore, and right. people were just ready to to get back to life as usual. Um, during the the height of the the shutdown, people were uncertain. Nobody knew when it was going to go back, and so people were nervous. And that's that's why we we had the uh, event in the first place. And again, it didn't matter what side of the aisle you sat on. You were just going to cut hair, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people come from all walks of life, and. You know, it was a frustrating experience for anybody not getting a paycheck. So I think that was, again, the, the great equalizer. Didn't matter why it was going on. It was just going on. And so the, and the other thing that you recently did for, uh, for charity, which I stopped by for, was uh, helping the shelter. Right, yeah. 
Well, um, one of our barbers, Spud, he's just a saint. He's been cutting at the shelter for over two years now. And we branched out to a second shelter and found that they were kind of in need of some financial support. Um, they didn't ask for it, but we just kind of noticed some things they could probably spend some money on. So, yeah, we threw together a little event uh, to coincide with um, the time change. So we did it on the day where there's an extra hour, um, you know, fall behind. And so we ended up doing a 25-hour uh, cut-a-thon. And we cut from 9 a.m. until 9 a.m. And it ended up being 25 hours. And raised somewhere in the ballpark at 12 grand. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was awesome. Great and, turnout. And none of it was community service related, right? Like someone might come to the <laughs> shop and go, well, no, we yeah. weren't forced to. <laughs> no, it was just it was something we we thought would be fun for us and, and also productive. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, talking to my mom the other day about, about all this stuff. And, you know, obviously she's my mom, so she's got nothing but kind things to say. Yeah. And I just reminded her that, you know, doing charity and doing stuff for other people is rewarding. Yeah. Um, it feels good to do stuff. So, yeah, there's no financial compensation or, you know, um, there's there's nothing to be gained except for makes you feel awesome. And it's, yeah. it's a good feeling. And, and I feel selfish for taking that because it's huge. It's more than money could buy. You well, can't buy nice the feeling of putting a smile on somebody's face. No, absolutely. And I brought my son in that day. Um to get his hair cut, and I mean, he was lucky enough to get you as his, uh, as his guy. Although everyone's great. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I would say I don't know how lucky he is there. <laughs> no, no, he got a lot of compliments. But there was really a sense of this, like this great sense of belonging and, and acceptance and just talking to people. And everybody seemed to, in the neighborhood at least, know about the, the project and, and, and what you guys were doing. And everyone seemed really happy to help and people were throwing money and you had the water bottles set up for donations and people were really excited for it. Right. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're fortunate enough to be in the richest city per capita in, in the United States. And I think that people in this country and others, of, of course, but in this country is very generous and want to help each other. Um, sometimes they just don't know how or, they feel overwhelmed. And so when there's something local, they'll usually throw tons of support behind it. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was awesome. Uh, couldn't ask for a better turnout. Um, and, you know, people were just dropping by with donations, didn't even want a haircut, just wanted to help the cause. Yeah. So it was, it was fantastic. So you think you'll do it again uh, in the, I guess, next fall, oh, I guess it would be? Yep, yep. We've we've decided to make it an annual thing because there was such a good response for it. So we'll just keep it up and see where it takes it. So since starting this barbershop of yours, uh, I mean, I, I haven't said, I've said the name without even saying the name, um, but it's the Neighborhood Barbershop <laughs> in Falls yes. Church. Uh, so since starting it, um, have you seen an increase in more like, in barbershops in the area, or are you guys still? And I'm talking about the traditional uh, barbershops. Um, 
Well, I I would say yes. Um, not not because of anything we're doing per se, but it's just it's an area with unlimited growth potential. I mean, there's really not a whole lot going on out here. There are a few shops here and there, and a lot of people trying to build new shops. I think if if it were a, a different climate for the younger generation, you know, millennials and, and the younger kids coming out of school, if they felt like service-oriented jobs were a little more becoming of someone, um, I think that there would be a shop like ours on every corner yeah. because it, it does. I mean, it, it fosters a little community. It's a little um, uh, ecosystem, so to speak. And it's just so cool. Yeah, it really is. And the shop you've set up is um, kind of like I've been to other barbershops um, that go, and I, I mean, I don't want this to sound at all as a slight, but they go with sort of a more high-end look. Um, right. You, you know, like with the with the, like the high-end wood and I don't really like, more of like a like a hunting lodge atmosphere. <laughs> right. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. There's, it, it's, it's cool because building a brand new shop from the ground up, you know, not one that was already a barber shop. Um, right. Our shop was previously a copy shop um, where, you know, just Xerox copies are made, things like that. Um, we had the ability to make it whatever we wanted and, a lot of it just happened organically. Um, I did look a lot at a bunch of different shops that I've been to and, and others that, you know, were kind of in touch with through the Internet across the world. And I pulled inspiration from a lot of them visually. Um, I'm no interior designer or anything like that. So it's just a testament to, to how lucky I am that things kind of just ended up the way they did because you know I, I, i'll say it i'll i'll recognize it the shop looks cool we uh yeah. we, we got very lucky that everything just kind of flows and and a lot of it is actually most of it is just products of thrift stores and being cheap and and finding things that just kind of hap happily you know work together symbiotically so was the vision that you or sorry not the vision was the product that people walk into the vision in your head? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so for anybody that's not been in the shop, um, it's it's kind of set in the style of like a 1950s barbershop mixed with maybe somebody's garage, you know, yeah. kind of kind of a hot rod garage, so to speak. There's, you know, posters everywhere, um, mostly old stuff, you know, old work ads, old car ads, um, things Mad of that nature. Mad Magazine covers, yeah, you name it. Um, you know, I'm really inspired by hot rod culture. I grew up in Southern California, and, you know, just kind of the flashy look of sign, sign painting and pinstriping and all that stuff kind of came into play. But I didn't want to drown out what was really going on there, which is, a bunch of old chairs, um, our oldest barber chairs from 1910, and the wow. newest is 1956. And, you know, they're all in semi-functioning order. <laughs> yeah. um, the back bars, which are 
you know, the, the barber stations. They're all from the 50s, and there's porcelain sinks and just all kinds of cool stuff that I was lucky enough to, to find laying around in people's garages or on Craigslist or, you know, other various places. And you've restored a lot of these chairs, right? They come to you. They're not in the con- in working condition, right? Right, right. Um, so where did you learn how to do that, or did you just trial by error? Oh, trial by error with everything. Yeah. I just fumbled my way through just about everything. <laughs> if you if you dedicate enough of your heart to something, it'll work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a few chairs recovered at um, or recovered rather, um, reupholstered. At a leather shop right across the street from our shop, a uh, place by the name of Beto's. Oh, and okay. yeah, he did a few of our chairs, and um, I did a few of my chairs um, on my own. And then, luckily, some of them were just cosmetically fine; um, just needed some mechanical work, and and that's been a a trying process, but but it's worked. Um, trying to chase the the gremlins out of all these old, you know, hundred year old chairs. Yeah. How does uh how does your wife feel about your collection of chairs? Oh, she's glad to have them out of the house. <laughs> Before the shop was open, um just about everything in our 1600 square foot shop there was yeah. in our considerably smaller house. I don't know how big the house is, but um yeah, just everywhere. We had stuff literally stacked from floor to ceiling. Um things tetris into corners. We had furniture we couldn't see. Um, it was just everywhere for, for months and some of it for a few years. And now it's all found a home. And now it's found a home. <laughs> Speaking of finding homes, the, the collection of barbers you have there, quite eclectic, the guys you yes. assemble. Um, where, do, where do these guys come from? Do you, do you know them socially? Yeah, yeah. So... Um, I'd say just ballpark without counting off the top of my head. Um, about half of them were barbers prior to the shop opening and about half have become barbers since. Um, the ones that were barbers prior, we've worked together elsewhere okay. or knew each other through, through other barbers and became friends and, and close that way. It's pretty tight knit community. Um, barbering is. And then a bunch of the other guys were just clients. Um, oh. they, they were just coming in and looking for something to do. And, and we got talking about, you know, the, the career path and, and what it takes to do it. And for some of the guys, they were, they were previously bartenders or, or wait staff and, you know, things of that nature, all, all working class guys. Yeah. They decided it'd be a, a good, good occupation you know and a lot of people get into this line of work thinking that they'll be their own boss and what they don't realize is you have hundreds of bosses each one sits in your chair (laughs) (laughs) yeah i guess i never really thought of it from that point of view even though i guess i'd be the boss yes sir absolutely who who cuts your hair um one of the other barbers usually i mean we just we trade haircuts after hours most of us are shaggy, kind of like the old parable about the uh, the cobbler's kids are always barefoot, right? There's a uh, there's a little story or an allegory of, of sorts that uh, 
something, something to the effect of, you know, you go into town and there's two barbers. One has an awesome haircut. The other one has a terrible haircut. But there are only two barbers in town. Who do you go with? Well, you go with the one with the bad haircut because he gave the other barber the good haircut. <laughs> so, you know, he's good. So we don't mind having our hair a little shaggy once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> but in terms of beers, yours is definitely the longest, right? Uh, I think Brandon's got me beat by a few years and oh, and, and right. a few inches. That's right. And then I had noticed, like, Spud had, had that great beard. He got rid of it. Did he get rid of it for right. charity? No, no. He just Spud's, – Spud's an interesting guy. He's just particular. He, make, he makes his mind up about something, and that's what he's going to do, whether it's not spending any, any money on frivolous things for a year or – you know, with his beard, he started growing it on a Halloween, and then two years later, he cut it off on Halloween oh, and yes. kept it away for one year, and then on Halloween, started growing it back. Yeah, and I noticed that his is already thicker and fuller than mine, and it's been two months? <laughs> well, let's see. Since Halloween, so what is it now? Maybe about, yeah, yeah, roughly two months, almost two months? three. Yeah. Well, I guess he's got that... I don't know, hairy hormone or growth hormone. Got a gene. <laughs> yeah, it's a gene, not well, a hormone. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You know, people people will call or drop into the shop and, and ask for advice. You know, how do I grow my hair long? How do I grow my beard long? How do I do this? How do I do that? And a lot of it is, you know, it's it's just genes. It's genetics. It's, yeah. you know, there there are other factors at play sometimes. You know, there's, there's alopecia and... and that's that's baldness. Um, you can end up with signs of alopecia from stress or from malnutrition, but for the most part, I mean, w- without without a, a condition to explain it away, some people just grow differently. Yeah, yeah. There was a like why are some people tall? Why are some people short? Right? Exactly. <laughs> there was a, a time when I was coming into the shop, and you. And I don't want to use the word crusade, but you were like really adamant about uh, barbers having their proper credentials. Yeah, that's something absolutely. that like really you're you're really um, serious about that, right? Definitely, yeah. Well, you know, there's it's it's a double-edged sword here. Um, barbering as a profession is not incredibly difficult to be legitimate. To, to go through school or an apprenticeship, um, it can be pro- cost prohibitive, but um, the state licensing agency has actually taken steps to make it less cost prohibitive. Um, last year, they passed a new law um, waiving um, the first year license fees for people claiming a financial hardship. You know, certain things like that. There are programs available. Okay. So usually it's not a, a cost thing. It's usually a laziness thing. Um, I've known a lot of barbers that aren't barbers, that are, you know, they, they've they received some training but aren't properly licensed or, you know, haven't received full training. They just figured it out as they went. And, you know, it, it's kind of like a driver's license. Does a driver's license necessarily make you a good driver? Not, not of course. I mean, I mean, not, not necessarily. Right. But you do have to pass certain safety requirements and and 
certain, you know, a, a baseline of assurance that you know what you're doing. And Barber's License is a lot the same way. Just tries to protect the public. Right. So what goes into becoming a barber? I'm sorry? So, like, what what's the process of becoming a barber? Going to school, like... Oh, gotcha. From start to... From start to finish, start to finish, I guess, from starting until you, you know, find that chair to work at. Right. What, gotcha. What's the process? So it, it varies state by state, and I'll just talk about Virginia because that's the one I know most about here. Um, there's two different paths to go. You can either go to school and, you know, go to a barber college and do the prerequisite amount of training. Um, right now, it is in limbo. There, there's been a change in laws, and they're still still working on getting everything totally finalized to change it from 1,500 hours to 1,100 hours to make it a, a little easier for people to make it through the program. And conversely, the apprenticeship program is the other option someone could take, and that one is going from you know, double the hours, so either 3,000 hours or 2,200 hours, just depending on um, where the law is at currently. And so if you're going to school, you pay to go, and theoretically you receive an education, both um, um, in, in the book, in theory, and then you also receive the practical education, how to actually do the job. And same goes for apprenticeships, but that takes place in a barbershop, you don't pay to attend, and you're paid to work. So it takes longer to go that route, but there is the financial um, advantage of being paid to learn. Now, at the end of that, though, of the apprenticeship, do you have to take a test somewhere to be certified? Yes. Yeah, there's the same test for both. Okay. Both, um, yeah, both paths you take. Um, there's a practical exam where you would demonstrate that you can safely execute a shave and a haircut and, you know, whatever else is on the test right now. And there's also a theory exam where you, you answer multiple choice questions. So it's a lot like getting a driver's license. Yeah. You know, there's the written test and there's behind the wheel. And you've and had a couple of guys come through the store as apprentices, right? Right, absolutely. Um, we've had one official apprentice. He is due to end in July. A couple of the other guys, we worked something out with with the schools to okay. help um, help prepare them for entering the workforce. And so, yeah, a few of the guys went through school, but then came to us to to kind of finish up their schooling and and begin their real education, which happens out in the in the workforce. You know, yeah. Once you have real live butts in the chair telling you what they do and do not want, yeah, and nobody to bail you out. Yeah, I remember I worked, um, I, I wrote radio commercials, and we'd always get interns coming in, and they would always say, you know, well, in school, we learned it this way, so I'm not quite sure why you're doing it this way. Like, because <laughs> I've been doing it for 15 years, I kind of right. have the real-world experience that you're talking about. Exactly, exactly. Um, but, now, but there's also, like, the cost people... I think might be under the impression that you just use scissors, just, you know, just a pair of scissors. There's definitely a cost associated with becoming a barber. 
aside from oh, absolutely. schooling, right? Right, right. Well, you know, like anything else, it's it's possible to excel at your job with with really basic tools, but it runs the whole gamut. I mean, you can spend as much money as you earn on tools in this profession to to do everything you want to do, or you can have the bare minimum and, and you know, neither one is the correct option. It's just whatever works for you. But yeah, um, even shears, I mean, they, they run from, you know, a, a couple of dollars for some garbage ones to several thousand for some amazing ones. Yeah. And that's just for the scissors, you know, and then there's, there's also clippers. Um, they all do something a little different. Um, there are just like any other product, there's, there's competing, um, uh, competing uh, uh, businesses that, you know, just different brands that essentially package the same thing and they have small differences. Sometimes it's just cosmetic. Sometimes it actually does something different. But, yeah, tons of tools. Um, I'd say, you know, just ballpark. I would say that we probably each, you know, we, we have a 10-chair shop right now, and I bet that we each have, you know, at least $3,000 worth of tools sitting at our station ready to go and that aren't worth anything to anybody that can't use them, but, right. you know. But you also gave me an education once. You talk about, you know, tools that are on the cheap and, and, and on the high end. You gave me an education once about different types of barber chairs as well, right? Right, absolutely. Well, the barber chair industry is an interesting one. Um Back in the in the teens and twenties and and a little later, basically up until the fifties, I think fifty seven was really the year that things broke. Um, America ruled the market. Um, there were a bunch of companies in the Midwest. There was um, Coke, Cokes. There was uh, Neil Pader, and there was uh, Coke, and I forget his first name. But they all had barber chair companies in the Midwest. One was in Chicago, one was in Wisconsin, I believe, and and I forget the others. But um, up until 1957, they really just ruled everything. The, the chairs were phenomenal. Um, they're, they're still in existence today. I mean, we're still using them every day, um, chairs that were made back in Chicago. Well, in, in the 50s, and most most notably in 1957, a company called Takara Belmont out in Japan was able to circumvent some of the copyright protections of uh, all three of the major um, manufacturers in the United States so closely so that you could actually purchase new parts for your Japanese chair. So, yeah, the the Japanese companies were able to circumvent the the copyright protections, and the chairs were so closely identical that you could buy new American parts for your um, Japanese chair to fix it. So instead of having to order from Japan for your and and I can't remember the prices off the top of my head back in the fifties, but let's say let's say a chair was a hundred dollars. Well. It was a hundred dollars in the states, but you could get it for fifty or you know forty-five in Japan, right. um, and d- distributed into the states. And so, 
you could buy that new piece for that garbage chair from an American factory and save on the shipping and save on the, the time. And so American companies were reduced to just producing chair parts for, for their knockoff products. So, um, yeah, around 1957, um, Takara Belmont put um, Koken out of business and bought up all of their trademarks and all their copyrighted stuff. So now they control those patents now, even today, and are releasing um, retro style, you know, 1920s, 30s, 40s chairs, but made in Japan with garbage material. And it, it's funny and ironic and, and everything else that Takara Belmont is now facing the same music because there's been a bunch of Chinese companies that popped up and are ripping off their their patents and reproducing chairs for even cheaper, but they're also less quality. So the chairs don't hold up. You know, you buy one of these chairs and it lasts a year and then they use a low-grade vinyl and the vinyl rips instead of, you know, a high-grade vinyl or leather. So that's toast. Then the hydraulic breaks and you can't fix it, so you need to replace it. So they're, they're just like everything else right now, just built to be replaced. Yeah, they sound like they're the printer cartridges of, of uh, barber chairs. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Where it's, you know, more expensive to buy a, a printer cartridge than just a new printer. Exactly. So, and, the, and then, like you said, the ones you have are these, some, some of them are 100 years old and they're in perfect working condition because you find right. the parts online. Or are people um, making yeah. replacement parts? Well, so it's interesting you ask. Um, I do get all the parts online um, that I'm able to track down. I I cobble together parts here and there where I can if if I can't find them. Some some of the chairs are just too rare. There aren't parts for them, or I, I can't find them anyway. But um, I'm actually dabbling in reproducing parts on my own. Um, okay. Yeah, starting to uh, cast metal and try to duplicate these parts that we all need in the United States that we're, you know, using these chairs still. The other thing that you have in your in your shop is the barber pole. What's the history with that? So the barber pole um, is pretty in depth. You know, there's a lot of lot of history there. So barbers used to practice bloodletting, which is a practice um, which the American medical industry does not practice or recognize anymore. But back, you know, a few hundred years ago, and even more recently, they practiced um, a type of medicine called the four humors. And don't ask me to explain it because I'm no doctor. I don't know, but... But well, part hold of it on, was, hold on. Hold on. Yes. you are not a doctor. I am not a doctor. I am just a lowly barber. <laughs> so those but, prescriptions you wrote me are worth. <laughs> hey, don't talk about that on the air. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> so, uh, bloodletting was uh, a practice of actually lancing open uh, the patron's veins and allowing blood to escape. 
And, you know, at the time they thought it balanced out your humors. You know, you had bad blood or you had too much blood or whatever. And so the thought being, if you release some, then your balance, your body will become more balanced and you'll feel better. Um, current medical practice or, or current medical um, opinion looking back is just that the only medicinal value that it really had was relieving blood pressure. But um, rumor is that uh, George Washington died at the hands of a barber um, during a bloodletting episode. Apparently uh, they did not know precisely how much blood was in the human body and they let out all of those thinking that he had twice as much. But um, so where, where that ties into the barber pole um, and for anybody that's not seen a barber pole driven down a main street of any town and seen one of these, it's a, usually a spinning pole with a red and white or red, white, and blue stripe with a, sometimes light on top, sometimes not um, usually a silver basin or some sort of basin at the bottom. And all of that means something. And what that is, is back in the day, when you would come into the barber shop to have your blood let by a barber surgeon, um, they would, and, and there, there are a few interpretations of, of where all this came from. So I'll just give you the one that sounds good to me. Yeah. Um, they're all pretty similar, but you'd come in and they would give you this pole to grab onto. And what you do is you'd, you'd clutch up pretty tightly with your hand and it would cause all the veins in your arms to, to kind of flex and pop out a bit. What they would do then is use this tool called a fleam, which almost looks like a pocket knife or something like that with a sharp tooth on it. So just imagine instead of the blade cutting on one end, it it jets out like a, a lowercase j or something like that okay, okay. and and has this sharp little point. Well, they would use another little uh, thing that almost looks like a small baseball bat and would just tap it into your arm. And they would just go go all the way up and down your veins and, and puncture you in a bunch of spots and then just let your arm bleed. Well, the, the blood would run down your arm towards your hand and would flow onto that pole that, that you were holding onto. And it would travel down that and into a basin that they would have sitting on the floor, you know, usually just like a silver bowl, right? Yeah. And so after that procedure, they would clean you up and they would they'd wrap you in cotton strips um, bandages. Well, that stuff was expensive. You wouldn't throw those away. You would just go rent them and put them out to dry because we didn't know any better. We didn't know about um, bloodborne pathogens and yeah. you know microbiology at the time. It was just you know it was clean well, once you ran water on it. Yeah, and and there were soaps at the time, but you know nevertheless, what we would do is um, clean those blood-soaked rags. And then take them outside, lay them on top of the pole that you're holding on to, and then flip over the, the basin and toss it on top to kind of hold the uh, strips in place so they didn't blow away in the wind. But when the wind blew, it blew these, these blood-soaked bandages, and they would kind of wrap around the pole, forming either you know, a white-on-red or a red-on-white striped um, configuration based on, you know, depending on how much blood was on the bandages, I suppose. Wow. And uh, so people would say, you know, if you need to know where the barbershop is, it's just look for the red and white striped pole outside. And so 
later on they added the blue to represent the veins. And okay. some people some people say it may have been a patriotic thing. Um, there's some there's people contesting that, so I I just don't know. And then the one <clears throat> you have is is pretty old, right? Yes, yeah. Ours is from 1920. It was made by Theoa Cokes, the uh, barber chair company in Chicago. Matches all of our chairs. And you found it just online? Yep, yep, found that one online. Um, I'd been searching for that particular pole for a long time, and I don't really like buying things online. I don't like ordering things, especially something that big, knowing how how fragile it is. But yeah. when push came to shove and the shop was open, and I ended up having to buy it on eBay. Now we just have to <laughs> petition, I guess, Fairfax County to let you put it on the outside of the of the store. Well, that I could do. It's more the landlord. He didn't want it oh. on the, the face of the building. Yeah. But it is funny. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that because in some cities and municipalities, they actually do have laws that um, unintentionally prohibit a barber pole. Because a lot of places have, have regulations that um, prohibit moving illuminated signs from being placed in a business and you know ours is both illuminated and it moves therefore yeah. is illegal in Fairfax County but they, they've changed that when you were a kid did you go to the barbershop as, as a kid like do you, do you have fond memories oh, of yeah. oh yeah yeah actually my fondest memory was going to the barbershop with my grandfather uh, it was one of those scenes out of you know um what's the name of the movie with Clint Eastwood, Gran Torino. Okay. It's like that barbershop oh. scene. It was, it was the first time I had heard somebody swearing at my grandfather. And I, it took me a moment to realize that they were friends who yeah. came in and, you know, they, they had a, a quick exchange and, you know, they taught me real quick. That's how grownups talk. Right. <laughs> well, that's funny. Cause you had mentioned that to me just the other day about showing my son that, that scene and I might have to do that now. Oh yeah, Dad. You know, for the most part, people nail um, barbershop scenes in movies. You know, there's Coming to America has one of the best. Yeah. Um, barbershop is great. Um, uh, Grand Torino. I'm trying to think of some of the others. There's there's a whole host of them, and pretty much any time you see a barbershop scene in a movie, it's pretty right on. And they yeah. all describe kind of the same scenario. It's it's just guys relaxing and it's, yeah. it's nothing against women. It's, you know, we don't necessarily um, take a hard stance on women being in the shop. Um, some shops do um, across the country and across the world. Um, there are some places that try to really capture the, you know, the, the man's shop, you know, the, the kind of the locker room atmosphere you could say and do whatever you want, but right. you know, for any women listening, we're not sitting around with our pants off or, you know, anything like that. It's just, you know, I think, I think a lot of places would, or, or they, they try to try and keep everyone more comfortable because let's face it, guys act differently when women are around. Right. Um, so anyway, our shop doesn't discriminate against anybody. Everybody is welcome. Now we don't, 
don't necessarily cut long women's hairstyles. It's just not something most of us have training in. But, you know, if a woman comes in and wants, uh, you know, what we'd call a man style or, you know, what somebody would call a man style, we would absolutely do that. It's no problem. Yeah. But there's also like different ethnicities have different hair types. Right. Definitely. And, you know, uh, the the people that are afraid to cut someone else's hair um, are just ignorant, just untrained. Um, a lot of people are uncomfortable cutting over curly hair when they're used to having straight hair or, you know, um, really tough hair. Um, and, and I'll say this, that most ethnicities, um, just generally speaking, most ethnicities have um, different hair textures. And unfortunately, a lot of society, um, and, and I'll repeat something that I heard in barber college, um, they simply said, like goes with like. And I thought that was bullshit, but I've seen it in practice and it is kind of true, unfortunately. You know, if if somebody pokes their head in the shop and they don't see people that look like them, they may try somewhere else because they feel like, well, if you don't have my hair, you have no experience with my hair. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you this, I think without exception, everyone in the barbershop went to a black barber college. Um, the more I think about that, I think a couple of guys went to um, Asian run barber college, but you know, um, the, the demographic makeup of our shop, um, is mostly Caucasian and one Hispanic. And I think, I think that's still the case right now. Well, well you're an all white. Okay. I'm, I'm, I didn't know you guys were all <laughs> Caucasian. Well, no, we, we have one, we have one token Mexican. <laughs> no, um, everyone is welcome to work at the shop and, yeah. and I'll say everyone is welcome to, to be a patron of the shop. Um, we are all fortunate enough. And I, I bring all that up to say that we were all fortunate enough to learn from a, a lot of the best in the business, you know, yeah. be that at a, a black barber college, um, Asian barber college or white barber college. Um, you know, we just learned from from who we could, and we experimented on everybody we could during barber college. Um, it's one of the one of the great things when you're when you're going to school. It's usually either a free or a five dollar haircut. So you get all walks of life, all all kinds of people coming in that just need a deal or want a deal, and so you get to get to learn everything. So get a good cross section of America that way. I actually wanted to ask you about the the price. Are people is there a, a like a sticker shock um when um, they come into your from shop? From time to time. Yeah. I would say you know, but it's reasonable. I'm not, I'm not like it's it's a reasonable I mean, going in there, I know what I'm paying and I know what I'm gonna get and I'm I'm comfortable and happy to pay it every time. Oh cool, thanks. Well I'll <laughs> say we're we're in the median um in prices. There are places that charge a lot less than us and people that charge a lot more. Um, we are at the target that we shop for ourselves, which is affordable for most, 
um, not overly priced, not not underpriced to where we can't make rent. But we we kind of ride that line. We're we're not driving around Rolls Royces or anything like that, contrary to popular belief. <laughs> um, yeah, in, in the area, um, I've seen haircuts as low as $5, and I've seen them as high as $100, and we're at $30. And I would say, you know, for, for a typical shop um, similar to ours, you know, with, with the size that it is and the location it is, we would probably – do best to charge more money, but I worry about the people that come in when you charge more money. And you know, on on the same page, you know, the people that are precludes from coming to the shop or prevent coming from the shop. Um, yeah, I think I think thirty dollars is a reasonable price um, for most general services that we do. Um, yeah. And you also have, um, I mean, I love the beard oil that you have, and that's a local thing, right? Where did you find uh, that product? Yeah, yeah, I think you're talking about Valhalla, which yeah. Uh, is, yeah, one of our favorites. I mean, we can't keep it on the shelf. It's actually a local guy. He he does work for, I think, the DOD as well. That's his day oh. job. And he branched off to do a little side project. And, you know, we we have a hard time keeping it on the shelves, I think, because He's really not. He he really wasn't ready for his success. Um, hold on, let me go grab my dog. Barking about something. Um, so, yeah. On one hand, he's a victim of his own success, but at the same time, he's just making an incredible product that everyone loves. And and so it's great because we're one small business helping support another. Um, and He's he's just a great great businessman. He's um, I could go on and on about how great Pete is. Well, it's you know like since I've started coming into the shop, you've introduced me to a bunch of great guys too who also, and maybe it's maybe it's you know like attracts like. They're charitable, they're they're giving, and they're community oriented, and that's sort of the feeling I get from you and the, the people you put me in touch with. Well, thanks. I'm I'm flattered for that compliment. Um, I'll say that, yeah, I think I think good people stick together. Um, and I like I like knowing that we put out enough positive energy to to get some of the amazing people that come through. Um, you know, there's just people from all walks of life, and 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 it's incredible because we have celebrities, we have normal people, we have you know, people scraping by, but when push comes to shove, everybody comes in and they're willing to help each other. Um, there's always a conversation I mean, without fail. There's always a conversation about, you know, one patron trying to help another patron out with something, whether it's, you know, they, they overhear them talking about work and they say, Hey, I'll plug you in, in my, in my network of people and we'll see if we can get you that job yeah. or, you know, um, you know, one day our friend came in and he was trying to think of a trying to think of a good way to propose to his wife and huge baseball fan. And one of our one of our clients works for the Nationals local uh, major league baseball team. And he was able to get them 
um, I don't remember if it was on the field or, but the, the mascot came out and they got up on the board and, and all that stuff when he proposed. And it was just, you know, it, it was something magical that happened, you know, just by chance, but at the same time, because all these great people get to have conversations with each other and, you know, we each get a little snippet of somebody else's life. It's, it's really yeah. just an amazing atmosphere. It's a place where, you know, people can just let their guard down for a few minutes and just be a human. It's, it's been wonderful. You know what? I think I'm going to end it there. I couldn't end on a better note. <laughs> I love it. Excellent. Love it. Excellent, man. Well, sorry for rambling on so much. <laughs> no, honestly, this is exactly what I wanted. There's, there's so much more to a barber shop than just the chairs and the pole. Uh, and you've really, you know, encapsulated it beautifully. I think. I think oh, people, thanks, Johnny. Oh, yeah. man, I appreciate you, bud. Now, all you need to do now is put bloodletting on your on your menu selection. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, we do it, but just unintentionally. Oh, okay. I don't mind. Okay. <laughs> hey, mistakes will happen, right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. And, Thank you, Johnny. Uh, I appreciate you. I'm probably going to see you in a couple of weeks. Okay, wonderful, man. Keep up the great work, man. You're an awesome interviewer. Thanks so much. It's uh, we're just gonna go back and forth now, but it's easy when the when the subject is is you. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Man, right. the best. Take care, man. Oh, dude, I appreciate you, brother, man. You too. We'll take uh, We'll talk soon, okay? Okay, for sure. Bye. Uh, all right. Bye bye. A lot to take in, right? I know. Who knew about the. Uh, the bloodletting did not know about that. And then all about the Japanese and the Chinese um, trademarks on the American chairs and uh, how there was like six companies that made barber chairs, really fascinating stuff. And that's why I do this because I get to talk to people who I like, who I think like me. And uh, we just get to shoot the shit about, uh, you know, what they do. And it's really interesting. So I want to thank Dustin and all the, guys um at the neighborhood barbershop because like i said they're a great group of guys you go in there you feel at home you have a cup of coffee you talk about whatever you want to talk about talk sports talk politics talk uh science maybe i don't know fiction science fiction um whatever and and uh, they're there to listen it's a great little place so thank you very much for listening to this. Too Lazy to Write is the name of the podcast. Uh, I am your host, The Real John Baker. You can find me on Twitter at The Real John Baker, or you can go to the website, toolazytowrite.com. It's the number two, the word lazy, the number two, the word write.com. And uh, you can send me an email through, uh, through that way. Or you can just email me, johnnybake71 at gmail.com. Thank you very much. Uh, I look forward to your feedback, and um, I hope you have a great week, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Too lazy to write, where anything can happen.